0: One of the reasons I love creating this podcast is that I can revisit some of the books I have loved all my life. Understood Betsy is one of these. Written in 1917 by Dorothy Canfield Fisher. This book is now in the public domain, which means it can stay available on this podcast forever. Here we meet little Elizabeth Ann, a nine-year-old orphan who has lived a very sheltered life with her great-aunt Harriet and Aunt Frances. They have been so careful with her and have taken such pains to analyze all of Elizabeth Ann's thoughts and emotions that she has never actually had to think of anything her own self. They have carefully raised her to be very delicate and sensitive and timid. But now the worst thing she can think of is happening. Elizabeth Ann, is being sent to live with the Putney family in Vermont. How can she bear being apart from Aunt Frances, who understands her so well? How can she ever make a new life on this farm in Hillsboro? Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Understood Betsy by Dorothy Canfield Fisher Chapter 1. Aunt Harriet Has a Cough When this story begins, Elizabeth Ann, who is the heroine of it, was a little girl of nine who lived with her great Aunt Harriet in a medium-sized city, in a medium-sized state, in the middle of this country. And that's all you need to know about the place, for it's not the important thing in the story. And anyhow— You know all about it because it was probably very much like the place you live in yourself. Elizabeth Ann's great-aunt Harriet was a widow, who was not very rich or very poor, and she had one daughter, Frances, who gave piano lessons to little girls. They kept a girl whose name was Grace, and who had asthma dreadfully, and wasn't very much of a girl at all, being nearer fifty than forty. Aunt Harriet, who was very tender hearted, kept her chiefly because she knew that Grace could never find any other job on account of her coughing, so you could hear her all over the house. So now you know the names of all of the household, and this is how they looked Aunt Harriet was very small and thin and old. Grace was very small and thin and middle aged. Aunt Frances. For Elizabeth Ann called her aunt, although she was really, of course, a first cousin once removed, was small and thin, and if the light wasn't too strong, might be called young. And Elizabeth Ann was very small and thin and little, and yet they all had plenty to eat. I wonder what was the matter with them. It was certainly not because they were not good, for no womankind in all the world had kinder hearts than they. You have heard how Aunt Harriet kept Grace, in spite of the fact that she was a very depressing person, on account of her asthma; and when Elizabeth Ann's father and mother both died when she was a baby, although there were many other cousins and uncles and aunts in the family, these two women fairly rushed upon the little baby orphan, taking her home and surrounding her henceforth with the most loving devotion. They said to themselves that it was their manifest duty to save the dear little thing from the other relatives, who had no idea about how to bring up a sensitive, impressionable child, and they were sure, from the way Elizabeth Ann looked at six months, that she was going to be a sensitive, impressionable child. It is possible also that they were a little bored with their empty life in their rather forlorn little brick house in the medium-sized city. But they thought that they chiefly desired to save dear Edward's child from the other kin, especially from the Putney cousins, who had written down from their Vermont farm that they would be glad to take the little girl into their family. Aunt Harriet did not like the Vermont cousins. She used to say anything but the Putneys. They were related only by marriage to her, and she had her own opinion of them, as a stiff-necked, cold-hearted, undemonstrative, and hard set of New Englanders. I boarded near them one summer when you were a baby, Frances, and I shall never forget the way they treated some children visiting there. Oh, I don't mean they abused them or beat them, but such a lack of sympathy, such a starving of the child heart. No, I shall never forget it. The children had chores to do, as though they had been hired men. Aunt Harriet never meant to say any of this when Elizabeth Ann could hear, but the little girl's ears were as sharp as little girl's ears always are. And long before she was nine, she knew all about the opinion Aunt Harriet had of the Putneys. She did not know to be sure what chores were, but she knew from Aunt Harriet's voice that they were something very dreadful. There was certainly neither coldness nor hardness in the way Aunt Harriet and Aunt Frances treated Elizabeth Ann. They had given themselves up to the new responsibility, especially Aunt Frances, who was conscientious about everything. As soon as the baby came there to live, Aunt Frances stopped reading novels and magazines and re-read one book after another, which told her how to bring up children. She joined a mother's club, which met once a week. She took a correspondence course from a school in Chicago, which taught mothercraft by mail. So you can see that by the time Elizabeth Ann was nine years old, Aunt Frances must have known a great deal about how to bring up children. And Elizabeth Ann got the benefit of it all. Aunt Frances always said that she and the little girl were simply inseparable. She shared in all Elizabeth Ann's doings, in her thoughts, too. She felt she ought to share all the little girl's thoughts, because she was determined that she would thoroughly understand Elizabeth Ann down to the bottom of her little mind. Aunt Frances, down in the bottom of her own mind, thought that her mother had never really understood her and she meant to do better by Elizabeth Ann. She also loved the little girl with all her heart and longed above everything in the world to protect her from all harm and to keep her happy and well and strong. Yet, Elizabeth Ann was neither very strong nor well. As to her being happy, you can judge for yourself when you have read this story. She was small for her age, with a rather pale face And big dark eyes, which had in them a frightened, wistful expression that went to Aunt Frances's tender heart and made her ache to take care of Elizabeth Ann better and better. Aunt Frances was afraid of a great many things herself, and she knew how to sympathize with timidity. She was always quick to reassure the little girl with all her might and main whenever there was anything to fear. When they were out walking, Aunt Frances took her out for a walk up one block and down another every single day, no matter how tired the music lessons had made her. The aunt's eyes were always on the alert to avoid anything which might frighten Elizabeth Ann. If a big dog trotted by, Aunt Frances always said hastily, "'There, there, dear. That's a nice doggie, I'm sure. I don't believe he ever bites little girls. <gasps> Mercy, Elizabeth Ann. Don't go near him. Here, darling.' Just get on the other side of Aunt Frances if he scares you so. By that time, Elizabeth Ann was already pretty well scared. Perhaps we'd better just turn this corner and walk in the other direction. If by any chance the dog went in that direction too, Aunt Frances became a prodigy of valiant protection, putting the shivering little girl behind her, threatening the animal with her umbrella, and saying in a trembling voice, Go away, sir, go away. Or, if it thundered and lightninged, Aunt Frances always dropped everything she might be doing and held Elizabeth Ann tightly in her arms until it was all over. And at night, Elizabeth Ann did not sleep very well. When the little girl woke up screaming with a bad dream, it was always dear Aunt Frances who came to her bedside, a warm wrapper over her nightgown so that she need not hurry back to her own room a candle lighting up her tired, kind face. She took the little girl into her thin arms and held her close against her thin breast. Tell Aunt Frances all about your naughty dream, darling, she would murmur, so as to get it off your mind. She had read in books that you can tell a great deal about children's inner lives by analyzing their dreams. And besides, if she did not urge Elizabeth Ann to tell it, She was afraid the sensitive, nervous little thing would lie awake and brood over it. This was the phrase she always used the next day to her mother, when Aunt Harriet exclaimed about her paleness and the dark rings under her eyes. So she listened patiently, while the little girl told her all about the fearful dreams she had, the great dogs with huge red mouths that ran after her, Her schoolhouse on fire, so she had to jump from a third story window and was all broken to bits. Once in a while, Elizabeth Ann got so interested in all this that she went on and made up more awful things even than she had dreamed, and told long stories which showed her to be a child of great imagination. These dreams and continuations of dreams, Aunt Frances wrote down the first thing the next morning. And tried to puzzle out from them exactly what kind of little girl Elizabeth Ann was. There was one dream, however, that even conscientious Aunt Frances never tried to analyze, because it was too sad. Elizabeth Ann dreamed sometimes that she was dead and lay in a little white coffin with white roses over her. Oh, that made Aunt Frances cry, and so did Elizabeth Ann. It was very touching. Then, after a long, long time of talk and tears and sobs and hugs, the little girl would begin to get drowsy, and Aunt Frances would rock her to sleep in her arms and lay her down ever so quietly and slip away to try to get a little nap herself before it was time to get up. At a quarter of nine every weekday morning, Aunt Frances dropped whatever else she was doing, took Elizabeth Ann's little thin hand, protectingly in hers, and led her through the busy streets to the big brick school building where the little girl had always gone to school. It was four stories high, and when all the classes were in session, there were 600 children under that one roof. You can imagine, perhaps, the noise there was on the playground just before school. Elizabeth Ann shrank from it with all her soul and clung more tightly than ever to Aunt Frances's hand as she was led along through the crowded, shrieking masses of children. Oh, how glad she was that she had Aunt Frances there to take care of her, though, as a matter of fact, nobody noticed the thin little girl at all, and her own classmates would hardly have known whether she came to school or not. Aunt Frances took her safely through the ordeal of the playground, then up the long, broad stairs, and pigeonholed her carefully in her own schoolroom. She was in the third grade, 3A, you understand, which is almost the fourth. Then at noon, Aunt Frances was waiting there, a patient, never-failing figure, to walk home with her little charge. And in the afternoon, the same thing happened over again. On the way to and from school, they talked about what had happened in the class. Aunt Frances believed in sympathizing with the child's life, so she always asked about every little thing and remembered to inquire about the continuation of every episode. And sympathized with all her heart over the failure in mental arithmetic and triumphed over Elizabeth Ann's beating the Schmidt girl in spelling, and was indignant over the teacher's having pets. Sometimes, in telling over some very dreadful failure or disappointment, Elizabeth Ann would get so wrought up that she would cry. This always brought the ready tears to Aunt Frances's kind eyes, and with many soothing words and nervous, tremulous caresses, she tried to make life easier for poor little Elizabeth Ann. The days when they had cried, neither of them could eat much luncheon. After school and on Saturdays, there was always the daily walk, and there were lessons, all kinds of lessons, piano lessons, of course, and nature study lessons out of an excellent book Aunt Frances had bought, and painting lessons, and sewing lessons, and even a little French. Although, Aunt Frances was not very sure about her pronunciation. She wanted to give the little girl every possible advantage, you see. They were really inseparable. Elizabeth Ann once said to some ladies calling on her aunts that whenever anything happened in school, the first thing she thought of was what Aunt Frances would think of it. Why is that? they asked, looking at Aunt Frances, who was blushing with pleasure. Oh, She's so interested in my schoolwork, and she understands me, said Elizabeth Ann, repeating the phrases she had heard so often. Aunt Frances's eyes filled with happy tears. She called Elizabeth Ann to her and kissed her and gave her as big a hug as her thin arms could manage. Elizabeth Ann was growing tall very fast. One of the visiting ladies said that before long she would be as big as her auntie, and a troublesome young lady. Aunt Frances said, I've had her from the time she was a little baby, and there has scarcely been an hour she has been out of my sight. I'll always have her confidence. You'll always tell Aunt Frances everything, won't you, darling? Elizabeth Ann resolved to do this always, even if, as now, she sometimes didn't have very much to tell and had to invent something. Aunt Frances went on to the callers, but I do wish she weren't so thin and pale and nervous. I suppose the exciting modern life is bad for children. I try to see that she has plenty of fresh air. I go out with her for a walk every single day. But we've taken all the walks around here so often that we're rather tired of them. It's often hard to know how to get her out enough. I think I'll have to get the doctor to come and see her and perhaps give her a tonic. To Elizabeth Ann, she added hastily, "'Now don't go getting notions in your head, darling. "'Aunt Frances doesn't think there's anything very much the matter with you. "'You'll be all right again soon if you just take the doctor's medicine nicely. "'Aunt Frances will take care of her precious little girl. "'She'll make the bad sickness go away.'" Elizabeth Ann, who had not known that she was sick, had a picture of herself lying in the white coffin, all covered over with white. In a few minutes, Aunt Frances was obliged to excuse herself from her callers, and devote herself entirely to taking care of Elizabeth Ann. One day, after this had happened several times, Aunt Frances really did send for the doctor. He came briskly in, just as Elizabeth Ann had always seen him, with his little square black bag smelling of leather, his sharp eyes, and the air of bored impatience which he always wore in that house. Elizabeth Ann was terribly afraid to see him, for she felt in her bones he would say she had galloping consumption and would die before the leaves cast a shadow. This was a phrase she had picked up from Grace, whose conversation, perhaps on account of her asthma, was full of references to early graves and quick declines. And yet, Did you ever hear of such a case before? Although Elizabeth Ann, when she first stood up before the doctor, had been quaking with fear, lest he discover some deadly disease in her. She was very much hurt indeed, when after thumping her and looking at her lower eyelid inside out, and listening to her breathing, he pushed her away with a little jerk and said, There's nothing in the world the matter with that child. She's as sound as a nut. What she needs is. He looked for a moment at Aunt Frances's thin, anxious face, with the eyebrows drawn together in a knot of conscientiousness. And then he looked at Aunt Harriet's thin, anxious face, with the eyebrows drawn up that very same way. And then he glanced at Grace's thin, anxious face, peering from the door, awaiting his verdict. And then he drew a long breath, shut his lips, and his little black case tightly, and did not go on to say what it was that Elizabeth Anne needed. Of course Aunt Frances didn't let him off as easily as that. She fluttered around him as he tried to go, and she said all sorts of fluttery things to him like, but doctor, she hasn't gained a pound in three months, and her sleep, and her appetite, and her nerves. As he put on his hat, the doctor said back to her all the things doctors say under such conditions. More beefsteak, plenty of fresh air, more sleep, she'll be all right. But his voice did not sound as though he thought what he was saying amounted to much. Nor did Elizabeth Ann. She had hoped for some spectacular red pills to be taken every half hour, like those graces doctor gave her whenever she felt low in her mind. And then... Something happened which changed Elizabeth Ann's life forever and ever. It was a very small thing, too. Aunt Harriet coughed. Elizabeth Ann did not think it at all a bad-sounding cough in comparison with Grace's hollow whoop. Aunt Harriet had been coughing like that ever since the cold weather set in, for three or four months now, and nobody had thought anything of it because... They were all so much occupied in taking care of the sensitive, nervous little girl. Yet, at the sound of that small, discreet cough behind Aunt Harriet's hand, the doctor whirled around and fixed his sharp eyes on her. All the bored, impatient look was gone. It was the first time Elizabeth Ann had ever seen him look interested. What's that? What's that? he said, going over quickly to Aunt Harriet. He snatched out of his bag a shiny thing with two rubber tubes attached, and he put the ends of the tubes in his ears and the shiny thing up against Aunt Harriet, who was saying, It's nothing, doctor. A teasing cough I've had this winter. I meant to tell you, but I forgot it, that that sore spot on my lungs doesn't go away as it ought to. The doctor motioned her very impolitely to stop talking and listened hard through his little tubes. Then he turned around and looked at Aunt Frances as though he were angry at her. He said, "'Take the child away, and then come back here yourself.' That was almost all that Elizabeth Ann ever knew, of the forces which swept her away from the life which had always gone on, revolving about her small person, exactly the same ever since she could remember." You have heard so much about tears in the account of Elizabeth Ann's life so far, that I won't tell you much about the few days which followed, as the family talked over and hurriedly prepared to do what the doctor said they must. Aunt Harriet was very, very sick, he told them, and must go away at once to a warm climate. Aunt Frances must go too, but not Elizabeth Ann for Aunt Frances would need to give all her time to taking care of Aunt Harriet. Anyhow, the doctor didn't think it best for either Aunt Harriet or for Elizabeth Ann to have them in the same house. Grace couldn't go, of course, but to everybody's surprise, she said she didn't mind, because she had a bachelor brother who kept a grocery store, who'd been wanting her for years to go and keep house for him. She said she had stayed on just out of conscientiousness, because she knew Aunt Harriet couldn't get along without her. If you notice, that's the way things often happen to very conscientious people. Elizabeth Ann, however, had no brother. She had, it is true, a great many relatives. It was settled that she should go to some of them, till Aunt Frances could take her back. For the time being, just now, while everything was so distracted and confused, She was to go to stay with the Lathrop cousins, who lived in the same city, although it was very evident that the Lathrops were not perfectly crazy with delight over the prospect. Still, something had to be done at once, and Aunt Frances was so frantic with the packing up and the moving men coming to take the furniture to storage and her anxiety over her mother. She had switched to Aunt Harriet, you see, all the conscientiousness she had lavished on Elizabeth Ann. Nothing much could be extracted from her about Elizabeth Ann. "'Just keep her for the present, Molly,' she said to Cousin Molly Lathrop. "'I'll do something soon. I'll write you. I'll make another arrangement, but just now!' Her voice was quavering on the edge of tears, and Cousin Molly Lathrop, who hated scenes, said hastily, "'Yes, oh yes, of course, for the present.' and went away thinking that she didn't see why she should have all the disagreeable things to do. When she had her husband's tyrannical old mother to take care of, wasn't that enough? Without adding to the household such a nervous, spoiled young one as Elizabeth Ann. Elizabeth Ann did not, of course, for a moment dream that Cousin Molly was thinking any such things about her, but she could not help seeing that Cousin Molly was not any too enthusiastic about taking her in and she was already feeling terribly forlorn about the sudden, unexpected change in Aunt Frances, who had been so wrapped up in her, and now was just as much wrapped up in Aunt Harriet. Do you know, I'm sorry for Elizabeth Ann, and what's more, I have been ever since this story began. Well, since I promised you I was not going to tell about more tears, I won't say a single word about the day when the two aunts went away on the train, for there was nothing much but tears to tell about, except perhaps an absent look in Aunt Frances's eyes, which hurt the little girl's feelings dreadfully. Then Cousin Molly took the hand of the sobbing little girl and led her back to the Lathrop house. But if you think you are now going to hear about the Lathrops, you are quite mistaken, for just at this moment old Mrs. Lathrop took a hand in the matter. She was cousin Molly's husband's mother, and, of course, no relation at all to Elizabeth Ann, and so was less enthusiastic than anybody else. All that Elizabeth Ann ever saw of this old lady, who now turned the current of her life again, was her head sticking out of a second-story window. And that's all you need to know about her, either. It was a very much agitated old head, And it bobbed and shook with the intensity with which the old voice called upon Cousin Molly and Elizabeth Ann to stop right there where they were on the front walk. The doctor says that what's the matter with Bridget is scarlet fever, and we've all got to be quarantined. There's no earthly sense bringing that child in to be sick and have it and be nursed and make the quarantine twice as long. But mother, called Cousin Molly, I can't leave the child in the middle of the street. Elizabeth Ann was actually glad to hear her say that, because she was feeling so awfully unwanted, which is, if you think of it, not a very cheerful feeling for a little girl who has been the hub round which a whole household was revolving. You don't have to, shouted old Mrs. Lathrop out of her second story window. Although she did not add, you gump, aloud, you could feel she was meaning just that. You don't have to. You can just send her to the Putney cousins. All nonsense about her not going there in the first place. They invited her the minute they heard of Harriet's being so bad. They're the natural ones to take her in. Abigail is her mother's own aunt, and Anne is her own first cousin once removed. Just as close as Harriet and Frances are, and much closer than you. And on a farm and all, just the place for her. But how under the sun, mother, shouted Cousin Molly back, can I get her to the Putneys? You can't send a child of nine a thousand miles without. Old Mrs. Lathrop looked again as though she were saying, you gump, and said aloud, why, there's James going to New York on business in a few days anyhow. He can just go now and take her along and put her on the right train at Albany. If he wires from here, they'll meet her in Hillsborough. And that was just what happened. Perhaps you may have guessed by this time that people usually did what old Mrs Lathrop told them to. As to who the Bridget was who had the scarlet fever, I know no more than you. Maybe she was the cook, unless, indeed, old Mrs Lathrop had made her up for the occasion, which I think she would have been quite capable of doing, don't you? At any rate, with no more ifs or Anne's, Elizabeth Anne's satchel was packed, and cousin James Lathrop's satchel was packed, and the two set off together. The big, portly, middle-aged man, quite as much afraid of his mother as Elizabeth Anne was. But he was going to New York, and it is conceivable that he thought once or twice on the trip that there were good times in New York as well as business engagements. whereas poor Elizabeth Ann was being sent straight to the one place in the world where there were no good times at all. Aunt Harriet had said so ever so many times. Poor Elizabeth Ann. Chapter 2. Betsy Holds the Reins. You can imagine, perhaps, the terror of Elizabeth Ann as the train carried her along toward Vermont, and the horrible Putney Farm. It had happened so quickly, her satchel packed, the telegram sent, the train caught, that she had not had time to get her wits together, assert herself, and say that she would not go there. Besides, she had a sinking notion that perhaps they wouldn't pay any attention to her if she did. The world had come to an end now that Aunt Frances wasn't there to take care of her, even in the most familiar air, she could only half breathe without Aunt Frances. And now she was not even being taken to the Putney farm, she was being sent. She shrank in her seat, more and more frightened as the end of her journey came nearer, and looked out dismally at the winter landscape, thinking it hideous with its brown, bare fields, its brown, bare trees, and the quick running little streams hurrying along swollen with the January thaw, which had taken all the snow from the hills. She had heard her elders say about her so many times that she could not stand the cold, that she shivered at the very thought of cold weather, and certainly nothing could look colder than that bleak country into which the train was now slowly making its way. The engine puffed and puffed with great laboring breaths, that shook Elizabeth Ann's diaphragm up and down. But the train moved more and more slowly. Elizabeth Ann could feel under her feet how the floor of the car was tipped up as it crept along the steep incline. Pretty stiff grade here, said a passenger to the conductor. You bet, he assented, but Hillsborough's the next station, and that's the top of the hill. We go down after that to Rutland. He turned to Elizabeth Ann. "'Say, little girl, didn't your uncle say you were to get off at Hillsborough? "'You'd better be getting your things together.' "'Poor Elizabeth Ann's knees knocked against each other "'with fear of the strange faces she was to encounter. "'And when the conductor came to help her get off, "'he had to carry the white, trembling child as well as her satchel. "'But there was only one strange face there, "'not another soul in sight at the little wooden station.' A grim-faced old man in a fur cap and a heavy coat stood by a lumber wagon. This is her, Mr. Putney, said the conductor, touching his cap, and went back to the train, which went away shrieking for a nearby crossing and setting the echoes ringing from one mountain to another. There was Elizabeth Ann alone with her much-feared great-uncle Henry. He nodded to her, and drew out from the bottom of the wagon a warm, large cape which he slipped over her shoulders. The women folk were afraid you'd get cold drivin He explained. He then lifted her high to the seat, tossed her satchel into the wagon, climbed up himself, and clucked to his horses. Elizabeth Ann had always before thought it an essential part of railway journeys to be kissed at the end and asked a great many times how you had stood the trip. She sat very still on the high lumber seat, feeling very forlorn and neglected. Her feet dangled high above the floor of the wagon. She felt herself to be in the most dangerous place she had ever dreamed of in her worst dreams. Oh, why wasn't Aunt Frances there to take care of her? It was just like one of her bad dreams. Yes, it was horrible. She would fall... She would roll under the wheels and be crushed. She looked up at Uncle Henry with the wild eyes of nervous terror, which always brought Aunt Frances to her in a rush to hear all about it, to sympathize, to reassure. Uncle Henry looked down at her soberly, his hard, weather-beaten face unmoved. Here, you drive, will you, for a piece? He said briefly, putting the reins into her hands hooking his spectacles over his ears and drawing out a stubby pencil and a bit of paper. I've got some figurin' to do. You pull on the left-hand rein to make him go to the left and tether for the other way, though taint likely we will meet any teams. Elizabeth Ann had been so near one of her wild screams of terror that now, in spite of her instant absorbed interest in the reins, she gave a queer little yelp She was all ready with the explanation, her conversations with Aunt Frances having made her very fluent in explanations about her own emotions. She would tell Uncle Henry about how scared she had been, and how she had just been about to scream and couldn't keep back that one little-but Uncle Henry seemed not to have heard her little howl, or if he had, didn't think it worth conversation, for he-oh! The horses were certainly going to one side. She hastily decided which was her right hand. She had never been forced to know it so quickly before, and pulled on that rein. The horses turned their hanging heads a little, and, miraculously, there they were in the middle of the road again. Elizabeth Ann drew a long breath of relief and pride, and looked to Uncle Henry for praise. But he was busily setting down figures. As though he were getting his arithmetic lesson for the next day and had not noticed. Oh, there they were going to the left again. This time, in her flurry, she made a mistake about which hand was which and pulled wildly on the left line. The horses docilely walked off the road into a shallow ditch. The wagon tilted. Help! Why didn't Uncle Henry help? Uncle Henry continued intently figuring on the back of his envelope. Elizabeth Ann the perspiration starting out on her forehead, pulled on the other line. The horses turned back up the little slope. The wheel grated sickeningly against the wagon box. She was sure they would tip over. But there, somehow there they were in the road, safe and sound, with Uncle Henry adding up a column of figures. If he only knew, thought the little girl, if he only knew the danger he had been in, And how he had been saved. But she must think of some way to remember for sure which her right hand was and avoid that hideous mistake again. And then suddenly something inside Elizabeth Ann's head stirred and moved. It came to her like a clap that she didn't need to know which was right or left. If she just pulled the way she wanted them to go, the horses would never know whether it was the right or the left rein. It is possible that what stirred inside her head at that moment was her brain waking up. She was nine years old, and she was in the third A grade at school, but that was the first time she had ever had a whole thought of her very own. At home, Aunt Frances had always known exactly what she was doing and had helped her over the hard places, Before she even knew they were there. And at school, her teachers had been carefully trained to think faster than the scholars. Somebody had always been explaining things to Elizabeth Ann so carefully that she had never found out a single thing for herself before. This was a very small discovery, but it was her own. Elizabeth Ann was as excited about it as a mother bird over the first egg that hatches. She forgot how afraid she was of Uncle Henry, and poured out to him her discovery. It's not right or left that matters, she ended triumphantly. It's which way you want to go. Uncle Henry looked at her attentively as she talked, eyeing her sidewise over the top of one spectacle glass. When she finished Well, that's so, he admitted, and returned to his arithmetic. It was a short remark, shorter than any Elizabeth Ann had ever heard before. Aunt Frances and her teachers always explained matters at length, but it had a weighty, satisfying ring to it. The little girl felt the importance of having her statement recognized. She turned back to her driving. The slow, heavy plow horses had stopped during her talk with Uncle Henry. They stood as still now as though their feet had grown to the road. Elizabeth Ann looked up at the old man for instructions, but he was deep in his figures. She had been taught never to interrupt people, so she sat still and waited for him to tell her what to do. But although they were driving in the midst of a winter thaw, it was a pretty cold day, with an icy wind blowing down the back of her neck. The early winter twilight was beginning to fall, and she felt rather empty. She grew tired of waiting and remembered how the grocer's boy at home had started his horse. Then, summoning up all her courage with an uneasy glance at Uncle Henry's arithmetical silence, she slapped the reins up and down on the horse's backs and made the best imitation she could of the grocer boy's cluck. The horses lifted their heads, they leaned forward, they put one foot before the other, they were off. The color rose hot on Elizabeth Ann's happy face. If she had started a big red automobile, she would not have been prouder, for it was the first thing she had ever done all herself, every bit, every smidge. She had thought of it, and she had done it, and it had worked. Now, for what seemed to her a long, long time, she drove. Drove so hard she could think of nothing else. She guided the horses around stones. She cheered them through freezing mud puddles of melted snow. She kept them in the anxiously exact middle of the road. She was quite astonished when Uncle Henry put his pencil and paper away, took the reins from her hands, and drove into a yard on one side of which was a little low white house, and on the other, a big red barn. He did not say a word, but she guessed that this was Putney Farm. Two women in gingham dresses and white aprons came out of the house. One was old, and one might be called young, just like Aunt Harriet and Aunt Frances. But they looked very different from those aunts. The dark-haired one was very tall and strong-looking, and the white-haired one was very rosy and fat. They both looked up at the little, thin, white-faced girl on the high seat and smiled. "'Well, Father, you got her, I see,' said the brown-haired one. She stepped up to the wagon and held up her arms to the child. "'Come on, Betsy, and get some supper,' she said, as though Elizabeth Ann had lived there all her life and had just driven into town and back.' And that was the arrival of Elizabeth Ann at Putney Farm. The brown-haired one took a long, strong step or two and swung her up on the porch. You take her in, Mother, she said. I'll help Father unhitch. The fat, rosy, white-haired one took Elizabeth Ann's skinny, cold little hand in her soft, warm, fat one and led her along to the open kitchen door. I'm your Aunt Abigail, she said. Your mother's aunt, you know and that's your cousin Ann that lifted you down, and it was your Uncle Henry that brought you out from town. She shut the door and went on. I don't know if your Aunt Harriet ever happened to tell you about us, and so... Elizabeth Ann interrupted her hastily, the recollection of all Aunt Harriet's remarks vividly before her. Oh, yes, oh, yes, she said. She always talked about you. She talked about you a lot. She... The little girl stopped short and bit her lip. If Aunt Abigail guessed... From the expression on Elizabeth Ann's face, what kind of talking Aunt Harriet's had been, she showed it only by a deepening of the wrinkles all around her eyes. She said gravely, "'Well, that's a good thing. You know all about us, then.' She turned to the stove and took out of the oven a pan of hot baked beans, very brown and very crispy on top. "'Elizabeth Ann detested beans.' and said over her shoulder, "'Take your things off, Betsy, "'and hang them on that lowest hook back of the door. "'That's your hook.' "'The little girl fumbled forlornly "'with the fastenings of her cape "'and the buttons of her coat. "'At home, Aunt Frances or Grace "'had always taken off her wraps "'and put them away for her. "'When, very sorry for herself, "'she turned away from the hook, "'Aunt Abigail said, "'No, you must be cold.' Pull a chair right up here by the stove. She was stepping around quickly as she put supper on the table. The floor shook under her. She was one of the fattest people Elizabeth Ann had ever seen. After living with Aunt Frances and Aunt Harriet and Grace, the little girl could scarcely believe her eyes. She stared and stared. Aunt Abigail seemed not to notice this. Indeed, She seemed for the moment to have forgotten all about the newcomer. Elizabeth Ann sat on the wooden chair, her feet hanging. She had been taught that it was not manners to put her feet on the rungs, looking about her with miserable, homesick eyes. What an ugly, low-ceilinged room, with only a couple of horrid kerosene lamps for light. And they didn't keep any girl, evidently, and they were going to eat right in the kitchen like poor people and nobody spoke to her or looked at her, asked her how she had stood her trip, and here she was, millions of miles away from Aunt Frances, without anybody to take care of her. She began to feel the tight place in her throat, which, by thinking about hard, she could always turn into tears, and presently her eyes began to water. Aunt Abigail was not looking at her at all, but she now stopped short in one of her rushes to the table set down the butter plate she was carrying and said, there, as though she had forgotten something. She stooped. It was perfectly amazing how spry she was and pulled out from under the stove a half-grown kitten, very sleepy, yawning and stretching and blinking its eyes. There, Betsy, said Aunt Abigail, putting the little yellow and white ball into the child's lap. There's one of old Whitey's kittens, and she pesters the life out of me. I've got so much to do. When I heard you were coming, I thought maybe you would take care of her for me. If you want to, enough to bother to feed her and all, you can have her for your very own. Elizabeth Ann put her little thin face over the warm, furry, friendly little animal. She could not speak. She had always wanted a kitten. But Aunt Frances and Aunt Harriet and Grace had always been sure that cats brought diphtheria and tonsillitis and all sorts of dreadful diseases to delicate little girls. She was afraid to move, for fear the little thing would jump down and run away. But as she bent cautiously forward toward it, the necktie of her middy blouse fell forward, and the kitten, in the middle of a yawn, struck swiftly at it with a soft paw then, still too sleepy to play, it turned its head and began to lick Elizabeth Ann's hand with a rough little tongue. Perhaps you can imagine how thrilled the little girl was at this. She held her hand perfectly still until the kitten stopped and began suddenly washing its own face, and then she put her hands under it and very awkwardly lifted it up, burying her face in the soft fur the kitten yawned again and from the pink-lined mouth came a fresh milky breath oh said elizabeth ann under her breath oh you darling the kitten looked at her with bored speculative eyes elizabeth ann looked up now at aunt abigail and said what is its name please but the old woman was busy turning over a griddle full of pancakes and did not hear on the train Elizabeth Ann had resolved not to call these hateful relatives by the same name she had for dear Aunt Frances. But she now forgot that resolution and said again, Oh, Aunt Abigail? What is its name? Aunt Abigail faced her blankly. Name? she asked. Whose? Oh, the kittens. Goodness, child, I stopped racking my brains for kitten names 60 years ago. Name it yourself. It's yours. Elizabeth Ann had already named it in her own mind, the name she had always thought she would call a kitten by, if she ever had one. It was Eleanor, the prettiest name she knew. Aunt Abigail pushed a pitcher toward her. There's the cat's saucer under the sink. Don't you want to give it some milk? Elizabeth Ann got down from her chair, poured some milk into the saucer, and called, "'Here, Eleanor!' Here, Eleanor. Aunt Abigail looked at her sharply out of the corner of her eye, and her lips twitched. But her face was quite serious, as a moment later she carried the last plate of pancakes to the table. Elizabeth Ann sat on her heels for a long time, watching the kitten lap the milk. And she was surprised when she stood up to see that Cousin Ann and Uncle Henry had come in very red-cheeked from the cold air. "'Well, folks,' said Aunt Abigail, "'don't you think we've done some lively stepping around, Betsy and I, "'to get supper all on the table for you?' Elizabeth Ann stared. "'What did Aunt Abigail mean? "'She hadn't done a thing about getting supper.' "'But nobody made any comment, "'and they all took their seats and began to eat. "'Elizabeth Ann was astonishingly hungry.' and she thought she could never get enough of the creamed potatoes, cold ham, hot cocoa, and pancakes. She was very much relieved that her refusal of beans caused no comment. Aunt Frances had always tried very hard to make her eat beans because they have so much protein in them, and growing children need protein. Elizabeth Ann had heard this said so many times, she could have repeated it backwards but it had never made her hate beans any the less. However, nobody here seemed to know this, and Elizabeth Ann kept her knowledge to herself. They had also evidently never heard how delicate her digestion was, for she never saw anything like the number of pancakes they let her eat. All she wanted? She had never heard of such a thing. They still did not ask her how she had stood the trip. They did not indeed ask her much of anything or pay very much attention to her, beyond filling her plate as fast as she emptied it. In the middle of the meal, Eleanor came and jumped into her lap and curled down, purring. After this, Elizabeth Ann kept one hand on the little soft ball, handling her fork with the other. After supper, well, Elizabeth Ann never knew what did happen after supper, until she felt somebody lifting her carrying her upstairs. It was Cousin Anne, who carried her as lightly as though she were a baby, and who said as she set her down on the floor in a slant-ceilinged bedroom, You went right to sleep with your head on the table. I guess you're pretty tired. Aunt Abigail was sitting on the edge of a great white bed with four posts and a curtain around the top. She was partly undressed and was undoing her hair and brushing it out, It was very curly and all fluffed out in a shining white fuzz around her fat pink face, full of soft wrinkles. But in a moment, she was braiding it up again and putting on a tight white nightcap, which she tied under her chin. "'We got the word about your coming so late,' said Cousin Anne, "'that we didn't have time to fix you up a bedroom that can be warmed. "'So you're to sleep in here for a while. "'The bed's big enough for two, I guess, even if they are as big as you and Mother.' "'Elizabeth Anne stared again. "'What queer things they said here. "'She wasn't nearly as big as Aunt Abigail. "'Mother, did you put Shep out?' asked Cousin Anne. "'And when Aunt Abigail said, "'No, there I forgot to,' "'Cousin Anne went away, "'and that was the last of her. "'They certainly believed in being saving "'of their words at Putney Farm. "'Elizabeth Ann began to undress. "'She was only half awake.' and that made her feel only about half her age, which wasn't very great, the whole of it, and she felt just like crooking her arm over her eyes and giving up. She was too forlorn. She had never slept with anybody before, and she had heard ever so many times how bad it was for children to sleep with grown-ups. An icy wind rattled the windows and puffed in around the old loose casings. On the windowsill, lay a little wreath of snow. Elizabeth Ann shivered and shook on her thin legs, undressed in a hurry, and slipped into her nightdress. She felt just as cold inside as out, and never was more utterly miserable than in that strange, ugly little room with that strange, queer, fat old woman. She was even too miserable to cry. And that is saying a great deal for Elizabeth Ann. She got into bed first, because Aunt Abigail said she was going to keep the candle lighted for a while and read. And anyhow, she said, I'd better sleep on the outside to keep you from rolling out. Elizabeth Ann and Aunt Abigail lay very still for a long time, Aunt Abigail reading out of a small, worn old book. Elizabeth Ann could see its title. Essays of Emerson. A book with that name had always lain on the center table in Aunt Harriet's house, but that copy was all new and shiny, and Elizabeth Ann had never seen anybody look inside it. It was a very dull-looking book, with no pictures and no conversation. The little girl lay on her back, looking up at the cracks in the plaster ceiling and watching the shadows sway and dance. As the candle flickered in the gusts of cold air, she herself began to feel a soft, pervasive warmth. and Abigail's great body was like a stove. It was very, very quiet, quieter than any place Elizabeth Ann had ever known, except church, because a trolley line ran past Aunt Harriet's house, and even at night, there were always more or less bangings and rattlings. Here, There was not a single sound except the soft, whispery noise when Aunt Abigail turned over a page as she read. Elizabeth Ann turned her head so that she could see the round, rosy old face full of soft wrinkles and the calm, steady old eyes fixed on the page. As she lay there in the warm bed, watching that quiet face, something very queer began to happen to Elizabeth Ann she felt as though a tight knot inside her were slowly being untied. She felt—what was it she felt? There are no words for it. From deep within her, something rose up softly. She drew one or two long, half-sobbing breaths. Aunt Abigail lay down her book and looked over at the child. Do you know, she said in a conversational tone, do you know— I think it's going to be real nice, having a little girl in the house again. Oh, then the tight knot in the little unwanted girl's heart was loosened. It all gave way at once. And Elizabeth Ann burst suddenly into hot tears. Yes, I know I said I would not tell you about any more of her crying, but these tears were very different from any she had ever shed before. And they were the last, too for a long, long time. Aunt Abigail said, Well, well, and moving over in bed, took the little weeping girl into her arms. She did not say another word then, but she put her soft withered old cheek close against Elizabeth Ann's till the sobs began to grow less. And then she said, I hear your kitty crying outside the door. Shall I let her in? I expect she'd like to sleep with you. I guess there's room for three of us. She got out of bed as she spoke and walked across the room to the door. The floor shook under her great bulk and the peak of her nightcap made a long, grotesque shadow. But as she came back with the kitten in her arms, Elizabeth Ann saw nothing funny in her looks. She gave Eleanor to the little girl and got into bed again. There now, I guess we're ready for the night, she said. You put the kitty on the other side of you so she won't fall out of bed. She blew the light out and moved over a little closer to Elizabeth Ann, who immediately was enveloped in that delicious warmth. The kitten curled up under the little girl's chin. Between her and the terrors of the dark room loomed the rampart of Aunt Abigail's great body. Elizabeth Ann drew a long, long breath, and when she opened her eyes... The sun was shining in at the window. This is your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Understood Betsy. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.